If you all would like to go ahead and open your Bibles up to the book of John. The book of John, that's where the majority of our lesson will come from this morning, or at least a portion. And as you do so, I'd like to welcome you out this morning to say thank you for your attendance. No, I appreciate the words that have been spoken already this morning, the prayers that have been led, and the songs that have been sung. And recently, I had told some people that one of my favorite days of the work week was Friday, but truly one of my favorite days of all is today, the Lord's Day. We come together to worship the Lord, and we come together to see each and every one of you, my brothers and sisters. I take great comfort from seeing all of you all. This morning... I want to continue on with a topic that we have talked about uh, over the last couple of weeks, and that is Jesus the Way. And I want to talk a little bit this morning about, uh, well, as we talked about last week, Jesus is the way to a better life. Even here on this earth, we see Jesus the way to a better life. But much more importantly than that, we see Jesus as the way out of sin. And I would like to discuss that a little bit this morning. You know, dermatologists have been saying for a long time, they've been issuing these warnings about those in our society who strive for that golden brown suntan. And they've been saying, uh, giving us a a warning of what that's going to be to our future, what that's going to mean to our future. And I read a quote the other day that I found kind of interesting. Today's deeply tanned beauties are tomorrow's wrinkled prunes. And I was thinking about that, that, uh, quote, and I thought, well, you know, sin is oftentimes similar to this concept. Sin is so much like that. There are what times when sin may look really good today. There are times when sin might look fun or it might look exciting, but tomorrow is always a different story. I want to talk to you tonight, this morning about a person that you might know. You might have heard this name before. It might not be a, a complete stranger in your thought. You might have read about him in history books. You might have seen his face in your wallet. His name is Alexander Hamilton. He is on the $10 bill. He was a founding father of the United States. And and studying about this, I I found some interesting stuff out about Alexander Hamilton. He was a chief of staff to General George Washington. He fought alongside him in the Revolutionary War. He was appointed in 1789 as the first ever United States Secretary of the Treasury. I don't know if that might have had something to do with him getting on that $10 bill or not. But just two years later, Alexander Hamilton would do something else that would leave a very different mark in his history. Her name was Maria Reynolds. She was a blonde 23-year-old who had come to the Hamilton's house seeking help. See, she was married to a man who was very abusive to her. He, he was uh, uh, beating her and, and would demean her, and at this point he had all but abandoned her. And she came to Mr. Hamilton seeking his help, and he had, and had every intention of helping her with a monetary gift to try and get her out of this situation she was in. But as things progressed, and as he went to her house to give her the gift, you can imagine what happened next. Mr. Hamilton ended up entering into an adulterous relationship with Miss Reynolds. Now, we don't know what Mr. Hamilton was thinking. Maybe it was, this could be fun. She's a very attractive young lady. Maybe he was thinking, this woman deserves someone who's going to treat her better. She doesn't deserve a man that abuses her and mistreats her and now has left her. We don't know exactly what he was thinking, but we do know what he wasn't thinking. He wasn't thinking about the effect that this would have on his career. A man that here should have ultimately probably been a 
presidential candidate was ruined when this came to light. He wasn't thinking about the vows he had made to his own wife and what that would do to their relationship and his children that he, that he had. He wasn't thinking about them. And he wasn't thinking about his soul. If you would, if you're in John 8, look over at verse uh, 34. The first thing we need to know with Jesus as the way out of sin is we need to know the problem of sin. And that is found in John 8, verse 34. Jesus answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. Sin latches on to us. Sin grabs a hold of us. It's like a chain around our ankle. It drags us down. Uh, Mr. Hamilton discovered this very quickly. Did his uh, sin stop with the affair that he had with Miss Reynolds? No. When her husband found out about it, he wrote letters to him saying, I might be quiet if you pay me. And so bribery comes in and lying and lots of cover-up until ultimately this scandal came forth and, and everyone involved ended up being hurt very badly. But that's not the only place we need to look at to see sin and and how it entraps us. If you want to mark your place here in John and then look over in 2 Samuel. Turn back to the Old Testament. I imagine you can guess where we're going to. 2 Samuel, another instance where adultery has led to all sorts of problems. David and Bathsheba. But in 2 Samuel 11, I want to notice that adultery wasn't the first thing that started to drag King David down. Notice in verse 1, it happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants uh, and all Israel and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Well, what's the first thing we notice here is that in this, this time of year was a time when the kings would normally go out. But David says, I'm, maybe thinks I'm, I deserve a break. You all go ahead. I'm going to send you all out. I'm going to stick around here. So David's not really doing a whole lot. All this is going on around him and we see that he's kind of loafing around in verse 2. Then it happened one evening, David arose from the bed. We get this idea of idleness going on. And he walked on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Idleness can be a very dangerous thing. We need to be aware of that. But David sees Bathsheba, and he possibly thinks, thinks some of the same things that Alexander Hamilton thought. This could be fun. Maybe nobody will ever know. Maybe I'm the king. I deserve this. Look at me. Look at this empire. I deserve to have uh, this woman. And again, we see what, how this, this sin that he involved himself in ultimately dragged him down into trying to trick Uriah in verses 8 through 13, trying to trick him into going home to be with his wife and even getting him drunk to try and get him to go home with his wife. And when all else failed, David ultimately has Uriah killed. And we see yet another, another time when murder uh, stemming from this adultery, another time where sin just keeps enslaving us, keeps dragging us down, gets its claws in and doesn't let go. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about back over in John 8. He's saying sin enslaves us. Sin, and the kind of sins he's talking about, of sins of, of things like addiction. We think of drug abuse and alcoholism. Sins of obsession like adultery, lust, pornography. Sins of habit like lying, gossip, profanity. These are things that just sink their claws in and it's so hard for us to break that chain. And it's stuff that we know are wrong. It's not stuff... Nobody woke up this morning and thought, hmm, I wonder if Kyle's going to preach a sermon on pornography. I need to find out if that's wrong. 
I wonder if Kyle's going to preach a sermon about murder because my neighbor, he's really been causing me a lot of trouble and I, it would be so easy for me if I could just take him out of the picture completely. No, we know that these things are wrong, but so oftentimes we fall prey to, to sin that we know is wrong. That's called sins of commission. And we do something that we know the Bible says is a sin. There are also sins of omission. Think uh, the Good Samaritan. Or James verse, uh, James 4.17, To him who knows to do good, but does not do it to him, it is sin. These are sins of omission. When we know something's right, but we choose not to do it. And even Romans 14 talks about those who violate their conscience. This is sin. In all these cases, this sin acts as a chain. And it binds us up, and it owns us, and it enslaves us. And ultimately, James 1 says it brings about death. If you want to turn over there, James chapter 1 and verse 14. Where we read, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it is full grown, it brings forth death. Now, in the case of David and Bathsheba, we could go back to chapter 12 and we could see that literally the punishment for their sin was the death of their, of their son. But so oftentimes, while a sin may lead to a physical death, we see that much more important, much more serious than that is the spiritual death that it brings with it. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin are death, is death. Revelation chapter 21 Verse 8 talks about this death and the eternal, the eternal t- uh, torment. In 21 verse 8, But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolatries, and all liars shall have their part with the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, brimstone which is the second death. And then in verse 20, or chapter 20 verse 10, we read similarly, The devil who deceived them. I want you all to remember that word. The devil who deceived them will be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So what we see here is the problem. Sin creates a very real problem in our life. Not only does it, does it grab a hold of us and, and, and bind us up, but it holds us until death. And so we look at John 8.34 and we realize that that's a problem for us. And we need an answer to John 8.34. The answer, the problem, to saw, uh, that is, or the, the solution to John 8.34 is found in John 8.36. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. This is the answer. This is the way that Jesus, or this is how Jesus is the way out of sin. He provides freedom. John, First uh, John four, chapter ten. <clears throat> 1 John 4, chapter 10 says that we are a propitiation, or that Jesus was a propitiation for us, excuse me. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now I want you to notice something about this word propitiation. Originally, it was referred to as an act of service offered to some God by man. Man would make propitiations to God to appease them. But in the Bible, it refers to something that God has done for man. God knowing full well that man could not find his own way out of sin. Man had no way possible to find himself a way out of sin. In fact, if we were to take the smartest men in the world today and and 
gather them all up and put them in a little room and say, you all aren't leaving here until you find a way for us to get our own selves out of sin, well, those men would just have to die in that room because it's impossible. There's no way for man to find himself a way out of sin. And so Jesus is the way out of sin in our life. Now let me stop right here before I go on, and I want to give you a warning. And that warning is this path that Jesus, uh, Jesus calls us to, this way, it's incredibly hard. It is an incredibly difficult path to journey down. And it has to be that way. If it was easy, if it was simple that we just had to bow our heads and pray that little prayer uh, to, to get out of sin. And when I mean get out of sin, I don't mean get out of a traffic ticket. I don't mean you know, get by with something that you've done. I mean get sin out of your life completely. If it was so simple as just to bow your head and pray that prayer, Lord, please forgive me of the sins that I had since the last time that I talked to you. Please take these sins out of my life. We wouldn't have sin in this world. We wouldn't have people who are still addicted to drugs. We wouldn't have people who are addicted to sex. We wouldn't have gossips and liars and murderers and drunkards. Those things would be a thing of the past. No, it is a hard path that requires more than just us asking God to take this out of our life. So if you want to follow Jesus down this path, this morning you need to look within yourself and you need to ask yourself, am I willing to do the things that Jesus has required for me to, to do? in order to follow Him. And if this be your will this morning, and I hope that it is, please allow me to share with you just four simple truths, four scriptures that will illuminate this path as, as we follow Jesus out of the bleak, rotten shackles of sin and into freedom. And these four paths, they start with John eight forty four. The truths that illuminate our path are found right back in John 8 in our, proof, or in our opening text. John 8, verse 44, and they start with honesty. <clears throat> In John 8, verse 44, we read, you, uh, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. See, the power of Satan, the power of sin, it lies in deception. It lies in things like, you couldn't resist that, you're only human. You can't survive without that. This is going to be so good, you just need to enjoy this. In fact, maybe one of the most prevalent lies of today, God made you this way. These are the lies of the devil. We don't find lies like this in the Bible. But they come straight from, the, from Satan himself. So the first thing we have to do if we are going to follow Jesus down this path is we have to get brutally honest with ourselves. We have to speak the truth. Psalms 15, we see a, a, an example of this. In Psalms 15, David here is talking about this man that abides with the Lord. And he asks the question, who is this man that can abide with you? In verse 1, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? And in verse 2, we see the answer to this. It is he who walks uprightly, he who works righteousness, and he who speaks the truth in his heart. He who speaks the truth in his heart. David says, says this is the first step on the path. To be honest in your heart. To be honest right here. And guess what? Jesus agrees with him. If you want to look over in Matthew 15, Jesus tells us exactly why we have to start in the heart. Look at verse 19. 
He says, For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. The way to break the power of the devil's lies is to start speaking the truth in the very place where sin begins. You might be asking yourself, what kind of truth do I speak? What is the kind of honesty that is needed in my heart? It's telling ourselves things like, this is wrong. When we see sin in our lives, we recognize exactly what it is. This is wickedness. This is lawlessness. This is evil. If I continue doing what I'm doing, I'm going to hell. These are the kind of things that we don't like to say to ourselves. These are the kind of things that we don't like other people to say to us. But if we want to follow Jesus down this path, we have to be willing to look at ourselves and be honest. This is the only way that we're going to drown out the lies of Satan. Think again in, in 2 Samuel 11. Remember David, when Nathan, uh, excuse me, not in 11, in, in chapter 12, when Nathan comes to David and tells him, this is what you have done, David could have believed the lies. I'm sure the devil was filling him with all sorts of lies this time. You're only a man. This is something that a man needs to do. Or maybe you're saying, it's not your fault. It's Bathsheba's fault. No, even better than that, it's Uriah's fault. What kind of man allows his wife to take a bath on the roof? Didn't he teach her better than that? No, that is not what David did. In verse 13, David says to Nathan, I have sinned. He recognized right from the beginning. He said, it was me. It was my fault. If I don't change, I'm going to go to hell. He knew and he was willing to take that step, that first step down the path to be honest with yourself. The next step we see is equally just as tough, maybe so even more tough. If you want to turn over to Matthew chapter 5, the next step we see is we have to perform extreme surgery. In Matthew chapter 5, Look in verse 29 and in verse 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for the whole body to be cast into hell. Now, how many times in our lives have we read this passage, and maybe it's in a Bible study or in a class setting, and, and very quickly someone is, now just be clear, Jesus is not saying here to go home and get your saws and start cutting fingers off and get whatever tool you would use to pluck an eyeball out. He's saying, no, don't do that. Jesus isn't saying self-mutilation, and I would agree with that point. But so oftentimes we say, oh, whew, and we go on. And we don't stop and look at what is Jesus saying here? What is he saying? This is very extreme. He wouldn't put this in there arbitrarily. And he doesn't. What he's saying to us is you have to be ready to do whatever it takes to be free from sin. You have to be willing to do whatever it takes. And you might ask yourself, what does it take? Well, it might take things like changing your friends. You might have to change your friends. And I'm not talking about just, well, I'll spend a little less time with my friends. No, Jesus was extreme when He said, pluck out your eye and cut off your hands. You might have to cut off friends entirely if they are causing you to sin until you can get yourself into a place where you aren't influenced by those things anymore. Or maybe it's going into a treatment center for drug or alcohol abuse. Things like this are hard to do. Maybe it's finding someone that you're responsible to that at the end of every day you will call them and say, this is what I've done today. 
and things like that are hard. But that's the kind of surgery we have to take. Maybe it very well includes changing your job. You might want to stop and take, whoa, 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 whoa. You don't have the right to tell me to change my job. Look at yourself and see, does my job cause me to sin? Maybe my job requires me to kind of massage the numbers a little bit for that customer that's trying to get the best deal. So we'll just kind of lie on this report and not tell the whole truth about where everything was spent. And that way our customer will stick with us. Or maybe my job requires me to take a customer out, show them a good time, do things that might contradict with what I believe is right, but that's okay as long as the customer is happy. Maybe my job causes me to have a great deal of anger and stress and And if these are all things, if my job causes me to go down a path that is wicked and that is evil, I need to get rid of that job. I need to find a new line of work. Maybe it means reevaluating your priorities. Maybe it's something that you thought was so important that you just, you you were going to have to, I'm going to have to miss services to go to this. Maybe it's a a sporting event. Maybe it's a a school play. Maybe it's work. And, And when I say work, I mean maybe it's a sense that something that I could have planned around. I could have moved around, but I chose, no, these things are going to be more important. Maybe we need to change our priorities. And maybe it means I'm going to have to walk down the front row and I'm going to have to make a confession of some dark, ugly sin that I've been hiding in my life. And stuff like this is hard. And it's embarrassing. But it's the only way that we can continue on this path. It's the kind of things we are going to have to do if we truly want to follow Jesus out of sin. You have to decide that right now. You have to decide, I am willing to do the kind of surgery that Jesus has requested of me. And I'm going to tell you, unfortunately, most people are not willing to perform that surgery. You know, it's springing up more and more places. You have this, these urgent treatment centers, and they're great, and I love them because I don't like going to the doctor. So I just kind of squeeze in here real quick, and my finger hurts, and they'll find me something, and they'll fix it. And I go on. So many people don't want a surgery center for their problems in their life, for the sin in their life. They want to put a Band-Aid on it. A Band-Aid won't heal sin in our lives. Only the right kind of surgery can do that. And Psalms 51 tells us that surgery, that surgery is heart surgery. Psalms 51, this is David again in regards to Bathsheba. In Psalms 51 and verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do you know anyone who's had heart surgery? I do. It's very serious business. My dad had heart surgery. He had a foreign object due to a a workplace-related accident lodged behind his heart. In fact, the doctor said if that, if that object had went in any farther into his, into his chest, if you look at your fingernail, the doctor said if that object had went in the distance, the thickness of your fingernail, any farther, it would have ruptured his aorta and he would have died in seconds. But it didn't. It didn't happen. It simply pinched his aorta. And so blood flow to his brain was reduced and he ended up having a stroke from this. It was serious business, this object that was behind his heart. It was killing him. And so he went to the doctors and they did heart surgery and they cut his chest open and they pulled his heart out and they took the object that was in his heart that was killing him and they took it out. If he had left it in there, he would have died. And the second thing that you'll find out from people who've had heart surgery is it hurts. It hurts so bad. It's not something that is comfortable. It's not something that's fun. I can remember the days of that little red heart pillow that he had and he would hold it so tight and he would cough and he would say, I'm dying. 
Because it hurt so bad. If we seek to get deep-rooted sin out of our lives, if we seek to follow Jesus down this path to get these shackles from our, our ankles, we're going to have to go through a serious surgery and it's going to hurt and it's going to be hard. And this is where people start to kind of go away from that honesty again. This is why that honesty is so important up front because the devil's going to be right there saying, it's not worth the pain. It is not worth the embarrassment. You can't do it. It's too hard. You're not strong enough. I'm here to tell you this morning, it is worth the pain. You can do it. You are strong enough with the help of Jesus. And we'll come back to that point. But we need to make sure that we are willing to take that second step and to, and to follow that light. The next thing we see is confession. So oftentimes people, they, they, they get these steps out of order. They, when they're having such a hard time, they just get them out of order. And they they want to maybe kind of jumble things around. See, the first step is we have to be honest with ourselves. We have to tell ourselves, this is sin. And the second step, we have to decide whatever it takes. Whatever it takes, I will do what has to be done to get sin out of my life. You know what? If that's the only thing you take away from this sermon this morning, I hope you take away that. I will do whatever it takes to get sin out of my life. And when these kind of things are done, only when these kind of things are done, can we come before the Lord and and make that confession. A lot of people, they like to jump to that part. They like to jump to the confession part and never make the changes in their hearts. Maybe you've seen that sometime. A person who repeatedly comes forward confessing the same sins over and over again. And, And it's always emotional and it's never that we don't believe them. But we wonder, why do they keep making the same mistakes? And it's because internally, they're still making the same mistakes. They haven't changed their hearts yet. So confession is a vital part of following Jesus out of sin, but only when we get our hearts in the right place. Without that, confession is completely worthless. The word translated confession, actually, is homologeo. And that word literally means to say the same thing. Does your heart say the same thing that your lips say when you confess your sins to God? Does your heart say the same thing that God says? Only then can we truly confess ourselves before God. Only then can we pray those prayers saying, I have sinned against you, God, and I'm asking you please to forgive me because I don't want this in my life anymore. I'm so tired of this dragging me down. I'm so tired of this sin holding on to me. I want, I want my life filled with things that are good things that are pure and righteous. I'm so tired of the corrupt and the evil and the wicked. Only then can we say prayers like that. And in Ezra 9, that's exactly what he is saying. Ezra chapter 9, you'll find Ezra right before the book of Nehemiah, after Chronicles and Kings and Samuel, then come to the book of Ezra. Probably don't spend a lot of time here, but it's such a great passage that is recorded for us in these these few uh, verses we're going to read. Starting in verse 3. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe, and I plucked out, <clears throat> and I plucked out some of my, the hair of my head and beard, and I sat down astonished. That word astonished, in some of your translations might say appalled, or maybe even disgusted. Then in verse four, then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgressions of those who had been carried away captive, and I said astonished until the evening sacrifice. Then skipping down to verse six, and I said. Oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift my face to you. 
My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Listen to the words that he uses. Is he sugarcoating anything? Is he looking at this and saying, well, we were just men. We were just human beings. He said, our sins, our guilt has lifted up, grown up to the heavens. He's not sugarcoating anything. He's being brutally honest here. In verse 7, since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation, as it is this day. And now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in His holy place that our God might enli- may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but He extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say for this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by by your servant the prophets, saying, The lands which you are entering into possess an unclean... uh, Excuse me, the land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the, land, <clears throat> with the uncleanness of the people of the lands, with their abominations which have filled it from one end to another with their impurity. Now therefore, do not give your daughters as wives for their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong, and eat the good of the land, and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever." And after, all that, uh, and after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds, and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve, and have given us such deliverance as this, should we again break your commandments, and join in marriage with the people, committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you have consumed us, so that we should be no remnant or survivor? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. For we are left as a remnant as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. Do you hear the pain in his words? Do you hear the humility, the brutal honesty? We need to pray like that. We need to recognize sin as what it is. And we need to confess the way Ezra confessed before our Lord. The kind of honest, specific prayers that these things will build us up. That God will answer prayers like this. They are essential to trekking down this path out of sin. So we've seen honesty. We've seen surgery. And we've seen confession as three vital roles. Three vital truths that, that are a part of this path out of sin. A part of this way that Jesus leads us down. This final step is found in Luke 19. If you want to turn over to Luke chapter 19, here we see Jesus in the house of that wee little man, Zacchaeus. He's in Zacchaeus' house, and Zacchaeus, as we read in the, in the text, is a sinner. And we can imagine he has been a sinner for a long time. It says he was a chief among the tax collectors. He's probably been doing this for a while. He's probably been a very evil person for a while. And Jesus is at his house, and it is what Jesus says to him at his house that that, that we need to take close attention to. In verse 10, he says these words, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus gives us hope. It's scary. 
It is so scary the control that Satan has on our life, that sin has on our lives. In fact, it's so scary that it pushes us to the point of despair sometimes, saying, I can't break this addiction. I can't overcome this obsession. I I can't replace this sinful habit. But listen again to the message that Jesus says. He says, for I have come to seek you. I have come to save you. What Jesus is saying is, I am on your side. Jesus helps us. He helps us through His example, through His intercession and prayer, through His Word, His church, even through His providence. Think about this. God saw to it. Jesus saw to it today that you would be here this morning, at this moment, on this day, in this auditorium, to hear this message that through Jesus Christ, you can be free from your sins. Always remember that Jesus is on your side. And it is this that Jesus gives us hope. He gives us hope that we can remove sin from our lives. He gives us hope that we can break that bondage of sin. And by following the one who came to seek and save the lost, who said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free. We have hope. So I want to leave you with this fact. Jesus is the way out of sin. Indeed, He is the only way out of sin. God has offered no other way whereby we might be saved. As Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the light. No one comes to the Father except through Me. There is no other solution to the problem of sin in man's life. So this morning I ask you, have you accepted Jesus? Have you accepted and trusted in Him for salvation through faith? Have you made that decision to turn from your old sins, to repent, and have you made that decision to be immersed in baptism, immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins? If not, my question this morning is why? Why not? And if so, my question is, is there something in your life that realizes you've kind of strayed off this path a little bit? All these these. These ways, these truths, they're to help guide our minds back to that path. If there is some way that we can help you in this uh, this morning, in any of these circumstances, won't you please come forward as we stand and sing the song that's been selected?